0: This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now,
1: here's Rick Edelman. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. A very happy weekend to you. Boy, I hate it when I'm right. Last summer in our special report that we wrote On COVID-19 and the impact on the economy and your personal finances, I warned you that due to the massive government stimulus that had already been done and which was still to be forthcoming, we were going to see ultimately very substantial tax increases as we are all forced to pay for the massive trillions of dollars of stimulus that the government is providing to get us through this crisis. And now it is starting, even though the latest stimulus package, the infrastructure bill being proposed by President Biden, hasn't yet been signed into law, hasn't even yet been approved by Congress. We don't know how big it is or how many more trillions it's going to be. We know something is coming and the states around the country aren't waiting to raise taxes because of the significant budget shortfalls they've incurred already during the crisis. First up, New York. New York State and New York City have already approved a variety of tax increases. As a result, the richest New Yorkers could be facing a 50% tax rate. That's between City of New York, State of New York, and federal income taxes. The state's top tax rate for those earning $25 million or more a year is now 10.9%. I know, you're just crying for those people who have annual incomes of $25 million or more. New York City residents, because they pay city taxes, have a combined rate of 14.8%, combining the New York City tax with the New York State tax. As a result, New York City residents now have the highest combined city-state tax rate in the country at 148 surpassing California, and it's 13.3%. Tax rate. You add in federal taxes as well, and the richest New Yorkers will be paying combined marginal tax rates of 51.8%. Well, who is this really affecting? Well, there are 90 billionaires in the state of New York, 30,000 millionaires. The top 1% of New Yorkers in 2018, that's the last year we've got IRS data the top 1% of New Yorkers had combined income of $133 billion. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? (laughs) That is as much as the bottom 90% of the people who live in New York. Those 1%ers paid 43% of all the taxes collected by New York City. So the game is on. What we see is happening is two sets of trends. Number one, Taxes are going up, and number two, they're primarily going up, not exclusively, but primarily on the very wealthiest, those with the highest incomes as well as those with the highest net worths. We'll have to wait and see what further tax increases are going to be levied, not just by other states, but by the federal government itself. And on a related notion with taxes, remember last week or two, I talked with you about the latest information and news about the traders engaging in the GameStop frenzy. I told you that they're all spending time on the Reddit chat board bragging about the fact that they don't know what they're doing. They were calling themselves stupid and kind of glorifying in the fact that even though they have no idea what they're doing, They were making a lot of money doing it by trading GameStop. Well, they're about to get one heck of an education, and it has to do with your 1099. You know what that is. IRS form 1099. You get it every year from your brokerage firm. They send you the 1099. It lists your transactions throughout the year. It reports what you bought, the date you bought it, the date you sold it, what you paid for it, and how much you sold it for. And you have to report all of these transactions on your Schedule D that's attached to your 1040. Schedule D is your realized gain and loss statement for your investment activity. You take all of your gains and losses for all of the investments that you realized, meaning the investments that you've sold, and you categorize them into two groups, short-term gains and losses and long-term gains and losses. You take your short-term gains, you subtract your short-term losses. You take your long-term gains, and you subtract your long-term losses. And you calculate how much tax you owe on your net short-term gain and how much tax you owe on your net long-term gain. The tax rates are different. The long-term gains have a lower tax rate than your short-term. Well, I know it's a little bit confusing. A lot of folks just hand all this over to their tax advisor, which is frankly what you're supposed to do. Let your advisor figure it out. You just give them the 1099 and they'll handle it for you. But the financial advisor community was all abuzz last week because advisors were talking about clients who have come to them in a panic. One guy showed his advisor his 1099. It's $500 pages long. That's a lot of transactions. One line per trade, 500 pages. Boy, that's a lot of trading. And what was he trading in? GameStop. This guy opened his account with $30,000. He started trading in GameStop last fall. By the end of December, he had accumulated $1.4 million in capital gains. Wow, that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's evidence of all the frenzy that was going on in GameStop. And all of his gains were short-term, meaning he had owned the stock for less than a year, which means his tax rate was going to be at the maximum possible because he wasn't enjoying the long-term capital gains rate. Now, in addition to the $1.4 million of short-term capital gains, he had a lot of losses, too because he didn't make money on every trade. In fact, he had 1.36 million in short-term losses. So, you do the math. 1.4 million in short-term gains minus 1.36 million in short-term losses. The result? His net profit from all of that activity, all that trading over several months, his net profit was a meager $45,000. He had a lot of fun, I'm sure. It was virtually a hobby, and boy was he riding a roller coaster, and in the end, okay, he made 45 grand. His annual income from his job is 60,000. That's his W2 pay. So, he almost doubled his income. From his paycheck of 60 grand, he's got another 45 grand in net profits from his trading in GameStop. Boy, what's not to love? Well, what's not to love? His tax bill When he figured out his taxes on the Schedule D with the help of his tax advisor, he discovered that his tax bill was $800,000.
0: Oh, come on!
1: The reason? How could that be? The guy didn't know about the wash-sale rule. If you don't understand the wash-sale rule, you could trigger a ton of taxes... Without knowing it, let me illustrate for you how the wash sale rule works. You invest $100, the investment falls to 80, you lose 20 bucks. You claim that loss on your tax return. Okay, but now try this you invest $100, it falls to 80, so you still lose 20, but the next day you buy the same investment all over again. That investment is now at $75 and it rises to 100. You sell and you make $25. So you've got a $20 loss on the first trade and a $25 gain on the next trade. Your net is a $5 profit, but not for tax reasons. You see, if you lose money on a security and you buy the same security again within 30 days, the IRS says you're not allowed to deduct the loss. So even though you lost $20 on the losing trade, you don't get to report that. You only get to report the $25 gain. You can't deduct the loss of the 20 bucks until you close out the position of the entire activity. So this guy has an $800,000 gain. He'll be able to claim his losses when he sells, but he didn't sell in 2020. So he gets no deduction for the losses in 2020. $800,000 in taxes with a job that only pays him 60 grand a year. This is what happens when you engage in investment activity without knowing what you're doing. Any good financial advisor would have been able to warn him by saying, do you realize that when you want to buy a security you sold yesterday, you're triggering the wash sale rule. You're not going to be able to take the loss when you buy the security again. The wash sale rule trips up an awful lot of people to their own regret. And in the worst case, when people really don't understand what they're doing and they don't read the statements correctly and they don't understand what's going on, it's not just an $800,000 tax bill that you owe. Last summer, a 20-year-old committed suicide when he thought his Robinhood account showed a negative balance of $730,000. It didn't. He was wrong, but he didn't know it and paid the ultimate price. Let's make sure that you know what you're doing when it comes to investing so that bad things, tragic things, don't end up happening to you. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com.
0: named by Talkers Magazine as one of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in the country. This is the Rick Edelman Show.
1: Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. Well, we just talked about what happens when you don't know what you're doing in the world of personal finance. So how financially literate are you? April is National Financial Literacy Month. We've got a lot of content for you at our education center. Just go to rickedelman.com and you can get all that content to teach you an awful lot of stuff about personal finance. Meanwhile, there's a survey done of the most financially literate states. Number one in the country, Virginia, is the most financially literate state. Among the next top ten, Utah, Colorado, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Maine, Minnesota, Iowa, Washington, and North Carolina. Those are the top ten most financially literate states. And the most financially illiterate? Coming in at number 42, Rhode Island. Next, the District of Columbia, West Virginia, Oklahoma, South Dakota, New Mexico, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and the least financially literate state in the country, Alaska. So let's see how financially literate you personally are. This will be particularly apropos if you are near retirement. Mass Mutual recently quizzed Americans ages 55 to 65 gave them 12 true or false questions. 35% flunked. 18% got a D. Only 3% we're able to answer all 12 perfectly correctly. Here are the 12 true or false questions about Social Security. Let's see how you do. Count up how many of these you get right. Number one, if I take Social Security benefits before my full retirement age, my benefits will be reduced for early filing. True or false? It's true. Number two, If I'm receiving benefits before my full retirement age, and I continue to work, my Social Security benefits might be reduced based on how much I make. True or false? True. Number three. Once I start collecting Social Security, my benefits will never change. True or false? False. Number four. If I have a spouse, he or she can receive benefits from my record even if he or she has no actual individual earnings history. True or false? The answer is true. Number five, if I have a spouse and he or she passes away, I'll receive both my full Social Security benefit and my deceased spouse's full Social Security benefit. True or false? It's false. Number six, the money that comes out of my paycheck for Social Security goes into a specific account for me, and remains there, earning interest, until I begin to receive Social Security benefits. True or false? False. Number seven, under current Social Security law, full retirement age is 65, no matter when you were born. True or false? False. Number eight, as a divorced person, I might be able to collect Social Security benefits based on my ex-spouse's earnings history. True or false? True. Number nine. Under current law, Social Security benefits could be reduced for everyone in 2035. True or false? True. Number ten. If I file for retirement benefits and have dependent children age 18 or younger, they may also qualify for Social Security benefits. True or false? True. Number eleven. If I delay taking Social Security benefits past the age of 70, I will continue to get delayed retirement credit increases every year that I wait. True or false? False. And number 12. I must be a U.S. citizen to collect Social Security retirement benefits. True or false? The answer is false. So how did you do? If you pass that test, if you got all 12 of those questions correct, you're among 3% of American pre-retirees. And you're also probably qualified to host your own personal finance radio show. Do you have a question for me? Just record your voice on your smartphone. Send it to me via Rick at rickedelman.com. I got an email from Mike. Let's listen in.
2: Hi, Rick. This is Mike from New York. You've mentioned recently that Uh, When it comes to elections, uh, whether Democrats or Republicans win, that it really shouldn't affect your investment strategy, as the country seems to do about the same either way. But you've also recently uh, said that uh, the country is no longer really a representative republic, and that it's now more run by the corporations. So my question for you is, when investing in your stocks, uh, wouldn't it make more sense to lean heavier toward the S&P 500 since those are the 500 companies that have the advantage of controlling the government and affecting policy and tax dollars to their advantage. That's my question. Thanks, Rick.
1: Well, that's an interesting thought, Mike. Thanks for uh, the observation. I'm not sure I would make that leap. Uh, And the simple reason is that from a public policy perspective, for example, tax law, regulation, and so on, what benefits big companies – generally also equally benefits little companies. Now, you could argue that some big companies could engage in antitrust activities that if they have the influence and power, they can you know, put pressure on the little guy and make it harder for smaller businesses to succeed. But that, I think, is the aberration. I think that's an uncommon scenario. Generally, tax law that favors a big company will equally benefit a small company. Uh, The R&D tax credits, for example, that might be provided uh, would benefit a small company as much as a big one. Uh, So I'm not sure that the ability of big companies to have greater influence will necessarily translate for those companies having greater growth in their stock prices. Um, generally speaking, it's much harder for a big company to grow as quickly as a little company, because by definition, they're a big company. You know, it's much easier for a rowboat to turn around than it is for an aircraft carrier. Um, so I don't know that I would make that leap of faith. It's a good notion, but I'm not sure I would agree with it. Bottom line, I think you should remain highly diversified with your stock portfolio own big companies. Yes but also own mid-sized and small companies, as well as U.S. and foreign companies as well. Diversification remains the way of the future. I'm Rick Edelman. You can do what Mike did. Send me your question by audio file. Record your voice. Send it to me at askrick at rickedelman.com. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Periodically, I share with you the latest updates in the field of exponential technologies. Let's talk about artificial intelligence Remember those paintings on the walls at Hogwarts where everyone in the pictures move? Well, now you can do that with your own photos. A service called MyHeritage can animate the people in your photos, making them smile, blink, nod, bop their head, and make other gestures. And you can do this with a picture of a deceased relative to bring them back to life. Hey, do you know the band Nirvana? now i remember why i'm not a nirvana fan but anyway that's beside the point check out this song called drowned in the sun written by not nirvana but artificial intelligence meant to sound like nirvana song is part of an album called lost tapes of the 27 club it's a project of over the bridge an organization focused on mental health in the music industry kurt cobain of nirvana died by suicide in 1994 the organization created an album of ai created songs of musicians who all died by overdose suicide or other means by age 27 including Jimi hendrix jim morrison and amy winehouse the project is meant to raise awareness around mental health, particularly for those in the music industry. But I suspect that the use of A.I. in the music industry is going to go far beyond that. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888 Or visit us online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com.
0: more with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. One of the most popular investment themes lately is ESG. That stands for Environmental, Social, and governance. This is a notion of investing with impact, investing in a manner that is consistent with your moral and ethical views. So do you want to invest in companies that are doing good for the environment, that are socially responsible, and which have good governance rules in place to protect shareholders and broader stakeholders, such as employees and vendors and customers? So This is now a filtering mechanism where money managers are evaluating publicly traded stocks based on how they score on a rating system based on ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Well, it's complicated, and the SEC is starting to get concerned. In fact, they've recently announced that they are investigating investment advisors that are offering ESG investment options. They're looking to weed out misconduct involving the sales practices and the products themselves. There are a wide variety of sales pitches being offered by brokerage firms, investment advisors, the mutual fund companies themselves that are manufacturing the mutual funds and ETFs that invest in accordance with ESG. You might have heard them market themselves as socially responsible investing, sustainable, green ethical, impact, or good governance. None of these terms are defined in the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 or the Investment Company Act of 1940 or any SEC rules adopted since then. And so the SEC has issued an investor alert warning that there is no SEC regulation governing the use of ESG as an investment strategy. Some mutual funds and ETFs screen out companies that have negative characteristics. For example, tobacco stocks wouldn't really qualify, would they, under an ethical category? On the other hand, some mutual funds are screening in companies for their positive characteristics, such as companies that have a zero footprint uh, regarding carbon emissions. Some focus on a subset of ESG themes. They focus on companies that are sustainable, others focusing on climate, others that are focusing on faith-based investing. So while tobacco stocks wouldn't really do well on the health score, they could actually do really well on the governance score. So depending on what your filter is would determine whether a company gets filtered out or filtered in. The increasing number of products and services, the lack of standardized and precise definitions, all poses risks to investors, says the SEC. For example, the variability and the imprecision of definitions can create confusion. So the SEC is warning firms, not just you, the investor, they're warning the investment advisors that it has seen potentially misleading statements being made about ESG, The SEC sees inconsistent disclosures and inconsistent portfolio management practices that don't match the client disclosures, meaning the firms are telling you one thing and then doing something else. The SEC says some advisors aren't implementing clients' negative screens. For example, a client might call their advisor saying, I don't want to own any companies that sell alcohol, tobacco, or firearms. And the advisor says, okay, we'll exclude those securities, But then the advisor doesn't really do it. They don't have a system in place to honor the request, and the client doesn't know that. The SEC says some advisors are using marketing materials for ESG funds that don't disclose they're being compensated by the funds to do it. In other words, if your advisor is telling you to buy an ESG fund, is your advisor also telling you that they're being paid to say that? And some advisors are bragging that they've made substantial contributions to the development of ESG products, when in fact, they didn't have anything to do with it at all. So the SEC is warning firms to be compliant, and they're warning investors to be careful. Hey, let me shift over to the world of college planning. We know the drill with student loans. 45 million Americans owe $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. The fastest-growing category of student loan borrowers over the past decade? People over the age of 50. Yeah, the number of people over the age of 50 who have student loans has risen 80% over the past two decades. So I want to ask a simple question. Why, if you're 50-plus, do you have a student loan out? Well, there are only two reasons. One You borrow the money for yourself. Now, it's not uncommon at all for people in their 40s and 50s to seek career changes or to want to advance their careers by getting a master's degree. Well, You've got to ask yourself a question. What is the ROI? What's the return on that investment? If it's going to take you two years to get a master's degree and it's going to cost you $150,000 to do it, which is, by the way, the average cost of an MBA, how many more years are you going to be working in your career, and how much extra income are you going to earn by virtue of having the MBA? What job promotion are you going to be able to secure, and what additional salary are you going to get? And for how long are you going to keep getting it, meaning how long till you retire, to justify the $150,000 cost of getting the degree in the first place. So if you're borrowing for yourself in your 40s or 50s, you've got to ask yourself if it's truly worthwhile. And if you didn't borrow the money for yourself, that means you co-signed a student loan on behalf of your kids or grandkids. This is very, very common as very often teenagers and those in their 20s can't qualify for student loans. They need to get someone with a better credit record to co-sign the loan for them. Well, if they don't repay the loan because you've co-signed it, you're legally responsible for it, and the lender, the creditor, is going to come after you. So, simple question, if you're contemplating signing a student loan document on behalf of somebody else, kids or grandkids, got a simple question for you. Can you afford to repay that loan or would it jeopardize your own financial security? You've got to make sure you're capturing this whole conversation in the broader context of your complete financial plan. Otherwise, what would seem to possibly make a lot of sense or be a relatively benign decision could have a huge adverse impact for you that you'll suffer with as you approach retirement. And on a related note to the college issue, I'm sure you've heard of fintech. That's short for financial technology, and there's lots of fintech out there that you play with every day. Have you heard of edtech, education technology? Well, you might not be familiar with the phrase edtech, and if so, you might not be aware of a company called Chegg. Chegg is the most valuable edtech company in America. It's worth 12 billion dollars. People pay 14.95 a month to subscribe to the Chegg database and it allows students to do research. There are 70,000 experts hooked into the Chegg software system. They're mostly based in India and these experts have advanced degrees in math, science, technology and engineering. They are online 24-7, and they will give you step-by-step answers to questions that you pose as a subscriber. You often get your answers in less than 15 minutes. Chegg helps students create bibliographies, solve math problems, and improve their writing skills. The main source of revenue, though, for Chegg is a program called Chegg Study. 46 million exam problems, and students can copy and paste the answers. It's called Chegging. Forbes interviewed 48 students who use Chegg's study at 19 colleges, including Columbia, Brown, Duke, and NYU. And all 48 of these students say they use Chegg to cheat. At Texas A&M, students in a finance course used Chegg to cheat on online exams. The school says hundreds of students submitted answers that they copied from Chegg faster than it would have taken them to read the questions. At North Carolina State University, a professor caught 200 students cheating with Chegg. In your effort to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars getting your kid a college degree, you might want to talk with your student to see if they're using Chegg, and if so, are they using it ethically and responsibly? The goal isn't getting a degree. The goal is getting the knowledge that is evidenced by the degree so that you have the ability not only to get hired, but to keep the job that you've been hired to do and build on your career. Chegg is a cheat if used incorrectly, and you want to make sure your students aren't engaging in that practice. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com.
0: free articles on personal finance sign up for rick's email update at rick Edelman.com.
1: let's take a telephone call here on the rick edelman show off to concord massachusetts where our revolution began welcome to the show bob how are you
2: I'm doing fine, Rick. How are you doing today?
1: Doing terrific. Thanks so much. How can I help?
2: So, the situation that I've kind of arrived at is uh, my wife and I are in our early 70s, and um, the bulk of our investment portfolio was made up of two Roth IRAs and two traditional IRAs. We each have one, um, and with allocations across a variety of asset classes. Now I rebalance these regularly to maintain our allocation targets, and um, but I mainly use my IRA as the the vehicle for those transactions since it's the larger of the two Um, but over the years you know this rebalancing and adding new asset classes has uh, resulted in our individual portfolios if you took a look at each of our separate ones diverging from each other so that they differ quite significantly the investments are exclusively low-cost etfs and mutual index funds and i can move money around at no cost so my question is is this a potential problem i mean should The individual portfolios essentially mirror each other. You know, I I could use the same funds and allocations in each IRA, but that would make rebalancing, you know, fairly tedious, as you'd have to do it each time to each individual uh, account. Uh, So I was wondering what your take was on on that uh, situation.
1: So several questions for you, Bob. First, is the overall asset allocation, in other words, let's strip out the specific investment accounts let's forget that there's money in your ira versus her ira just add up all the money with all of the investments is all overall is all of the money based on an asset allocation that makes sense for the household yes it does okay second how's your marriage happy stable
2: <laughs> uh it's it's fantastic um we've been married for 38 years and uh i've been together for 40 and uh um, I can't even imagine how that would change uh, anytime, uh, um, you know, for
1: decades. <laughs> Wonderful, happy to hear that for you. And third, is your wife aware of how you're managing the money and where the money is and how you're rebalancing it, et cetera, et cetera? Is she aware with all this?
2: Um, yes, she is at a at a fairly, you know. Um, rudimentary level i mean this isn't her thing um
1: mm-hmm. with finances but i've but she's familiar and she has approved of what you're doing
2: oh yeah she she you know, i mean number one she trusts me implicitly and number two she you know she i think has a certain comfort level with the fact that she's in, in an allocation scheme you know for um the whole for our whole approach and in and, and even hers i mean hers is, is skewed a little bit more towards kind of a core holding of large and small cap Um, uh, equities. Mine kind of contains more of the mid cap and international stuff and everything else. But I think she's comfortable with it. Yes.
1: So aside from my wanting to talk to her to get her to tell me herself that she is knowledgeable, aware and satisfied with what you're doing, I'm going to take you at your word that the answer to those three questions are yes, then no, there's no problem. Keep doing what you're doing.
2: All right. Well, that's uh, that's good. I just uh, I, I didn't think it'd be a problem since we're going to each end up with you know whoever whoever goes first, the other one's going to end up with the whole thing anyway. So exactly, and which I understand why you asked about how my marriage was. <laughs> um,
1: yes, because if there was a divorce uh, and there was a disparate amount of money in one account holding versus another, or a different level of risk in one account's holdings over another, then that could be an issue in the divorce settlement. Yeah. But since you have a happy marriage, that's not a factor.
2: I, like I say, I can't really imagine how that wouldn't continue to go the way it's been going. So,
1: Well, that's why I asked if she's knowledgeable and happy with what you're doing, because if not, <laughs> that's how you end up in the divorce. So far, so good. Okay.
2: Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Rick. I appreciate the, uh, uh, the commentary on that. That helps me kind of put that to rest, and I'll just kind of keep doing what I'm doing then.
1: Bob, I wish you and your wife the very best.
2: Thank you very much. You too.
1: That was Bob here on the Rick Edelman Show from Concord, Massachusetts. And uh, yeah, I want to just emphasize something really important. The answer I gave Bob is unique to Bob and his wife and for largely non-economic factors, more marital factors than anything else. So do not necessarily take my advice to Bob as something that is applicable for you. You need to talk with your own financial advisor and evaluate what's going on, not merely in the portfolio, but in your marital relationship as well. Time now for a visit from my wife, Jean Edelman, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Jean, co-founder, of course, here at Edelman Financial Engines with a degree in consumer economics and a uh, specialty in nutrition. And an expert in macrobiotic cooking. Jean here with her weekly segment, everybody's favorite of the show. Jeanie.
3: Hi, everybody. Always great to be here. Today, I thought I would talk about time. Time is always a concept that has befuddled me. What is time? There are so many phrases that we use in our day. Do you have time? Looking back in time, Webster's Dictionary says time is an ongoing sequence of events taking place. We have the past, the present, the future, and the basic unit of time is a second. Can we control time? No. Can we control what we do with our time? Hmm, Sometimes. We tend to look back in time. I will share with you some looking back. Rick and I, we know each other 44 years. We've been married for 39 and our company is 36 years old. Those are a lot of memories, moments, and events. And all of these moments build up upon themselves to create a beautiful life. And so the pandemic, we feel like we lost a lot of time, but I think we gained a lot of time. We didn't have all the busyness. We didn't have all the business travel. We didn't have all the commuting. Hopefully we found time for ourselves and we had time for our family and cooking and playing together. And I know we were doing Zoom calls and school online, but hopefully we found good time for each other. Now that we're getting back to somewhat normal, I think it's important that we make the most of our time. Now that we understand what it's like to be without family and friends, let's cherish the new moments that we have together. I actually feel blessed because I got a chance to visit with my parents and got to see my brother and sister for the first time in over a year and a half. I found myself just sitting with them in silence with this big smile on my face. I was just soaking them up and just being with them, looking them deep in the eye, knowing how much we missed each other and how wonderful it was to be together. I didn't feel like I needed to fill the space with chatter. It was just joyful to be together. And so time, it's something that we reflect upon looking at the past, but being here now in this moment and cherishing this moment, that's what's important. And then also holding the memories of those that have gone before and the time that we had together. So time, that's going to be my word for the week. T is for truth. I love this word truth. When we know and speak our personal truth and we don't waver, things go pretty smoothly. The I, I is for illuminate. We are all shining stars and sharing our light every day is so important. It's impactful and it makes a difference. M is for meaningful. Don't waste the moments. Find meaningful work. Find meaningful time with our family and friends. Let's not squander the moments. We have all experienced what it's like. Let's fill them with things that bring us joy and happiness. And E is for empathy. We are all one and we are all on this one planet spinning in this universe. Have we not learned anything from the pandemic? Hopefully we have learned that we are all equal and we have all shared difficult, difficult times. And when we approach and see each other, it should be with empathy, compassion, and kindness. And these are the moments that will count the most. Time. We're going to want to make up for lost time with travel and celebrating. But let's please be safe. We're not out of the woods yet. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and appreciate the time we are spending with each other.
1: Thanks, Gene. It's always fun to have you in the studio. And thank you for joining us on the program to reach us, 888-PLAN-RICK or visit ricedelman.com. I'll see you next week.
0: money every weekend on the Rick Edelman Show.